there is a a speaking appointment it's an opportunity for ministry but a kind of speaking appointment that most Adventist pastors do not enjoy it's an appointment that I have found to be very stressful a number of times over the years that particular kind of speaking appointment happens when someone is a member of the church and passes away and there's a funeral service or a memorial service and I've been asked to speak and most of the relatives are members of other Christian denominations. Now what makes this particular kind of funeral or memorial service so stressful is that the members of other churches expect to hear a particular thing said. What they want to hear is that their loved one is already in the kingdom of heaven enjoying fellowship with God the Father and Jesus Christ. They're already in paradise. And when they don't hear that, they're disappointed and they can be uh, a little bit rude to the pastor, mainly myself. I'll give you several examples. I was asked to speak at a funeral where the lady who passed away was a member of Palmdale Church. Right across the street was a mortuary with a large chapel. We went there for the, for the uh, funeral service. Many, many members of that person's family came and their friends from their church. And I preached a message as carefully as I could to present the subject of the resurrection as the beginning of eternal life for those of us who are raised back to life when Jesus returns the second time. As soon as I sat down, a minister from another church got up, took the pulpit, and proceeded to refute every single point I had made in my message. On the way out the door, I was waiting for him. <laughs> he had quoted John 5, 24 and 25. John 5, 24, I should say. But when he came out, I pointed out to him that he had not read the second part of the verse, and he had not read verse 25. We had quite a discussion there, and I reproved him for his rudeness in getting up and directly contradicting me. I have had a number of experiences like this, and what I want to tell you today is that sometimes it can be difficult to comfort and celebrate the life of a deceased person with, without confronting them with what Adventists teach about life, death, and the resurrection. It can be difficult. I'm going to tell you a little joke this morning which will make my point. There was a pastor in Texas. 
And this pastor was young and he was very well received. He was appreciated by his congregation and everybody in town knew him. Also in the same town, there were two brothers who lived there. And they were the exact opposite of the character that this young pastor always showed to the church and the community. They were rascals. They were gangsters. Nothing good could be said about them. And then one day, one of these brothers passed away. And his surviving brother came to visit the young pastor who was noted as being an excellent speaker. And he said, I want you to do the service. I want you to preach the, the sermon. And what I want you to say is that my brother was a saint. Now the young pastor had to really give this some thought. He had to really pray about it. So it came time for the funeral message and there was the surviving brother on the front row and the brother who had passed was in the casket and the young pastor began to preach. And here's what he said. The man in the casket was absolutely no good. He was a gangster. He was a rascal. He was a liar. He was a cheat. But compared with his brother, he was a saint. <laughs> and I have had circumstances where I had to really work hard to think about how to present an honest and truthful Bible position that we as Adventists believe without offending people and without getting them angry. Now why is it that in many, in almost all the other churches, why is it that they believe, they have a popular belief that when you die or when a Christian passes away, their spirit, their soul goes directly to be with God in paradise. Why is it that they hold to that view? And when you're preaching a funeral message, they expect to hear that. I was at one graveside service. The pastor said, you know, almost every reference in the New Testament uh, to, to the life eternal says that the scriptures are referring to the resurrection of the dead. Uh, and, uh, but I'm, I still believe in Philippians chapter 1, he said. And uh, so right now, the deceased, who had a wonderful sense of humor, is in heaven trading jokes with God. <laughs> See. And so we have to be so careful to represent what we understand the Bible to be teaching in a way that does not confront but comforts and celebrates. I'd like to study this subject with you this morning with a different perspective. Would you take your Bibles, if you happen to have them, and turn to Philippians chapter 121. Now I've given you a sermon outline today so that you can take it home and go over the scriptures carefully and see if 
in your private study, you will agree with my interpretation of these verses. Philippians chapter 1 and verses 21 and following is the one passage that seems to support the popular view about death and life in paradise after death. This is the one verse that you will meet over and over again. And to be candid with you, it is a verse that most Adventist pastors avoid. You, will pro you probably have never heard a sermon preached on this particular passage before in an Adventist church. It's the one verse that they always come back to. Let's look at this verse, and I'm going to read from the uh, New International Version, starting with verse 21. We'll read it slowly. For to me, the Apostle Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, I absolutely love my life. I viewed death as the worst possible thing that could happen to me. Now, I grant you that there are some occasions when someone may be suffering terribly. It may be an older person and they're, they're just so miserable constantly. They may be dying of cancer and the pain medication uh, doesn't, doesn't work for them as well as, as they would hope, and they are miserable. Now, for that person, I would say that death could be a release, a release. But again, I, I personally don't think so. Let's go on with this passage. Verse 22. For if I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me, yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. Now he makes a, 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 a point here that's very plainly and boldly said. He said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live, go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor, but what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Depart and be with Christ. Now there's the verse. Let's see what we can do with it today. First of all, the resurrection from the dead, the resurrection of the dead, is mentioned 41 times in the New Testament. 41 times. We are told things such as the, pers the people who have died have died. They are in Christ. They are asleep in Christ. This is the one verse which seems to contradict the rest of the scriptures on this particular subject in the New Testament. 
Now the next thing we're going to note about this verse is that Paul is speaking in the first person. He does not say we, he only says I. When you look at the great resurrection passages like 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, these are the most important scriptures in the New Testament. John chapter 5, for example. In those passages, the Apostle Paul is always speaking in the plural, we. We who are left alive and remain, for example. This is the only time he speaks of death in the first person. What am I to do? Shall I go on or shall I stay with you folks and minister? Now, the popular point of view Adventists do not agree with, and we have three main reasons why we do not agree with the usual popular interpretation of this passage. Now, as we look at this verse, we see, first of all, it's in the first person. Paul is not generalizing to the church. But we also have to compare it with another scripture. And in that other scripture, which we're going to look at, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, if you don't mind turning there in your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. In this passage, and it's an amazing Bible passage, the Apostle Paul tells us that he has already been to heaven. He's already been to paradise. Let's follow along as I read this scripture. He said, I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. There are three heavens in the Bible, you know. There's the atmospheric heaven, there's the starry heaven, and then there's the third heaven that we call paradise. So he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Now, of whom is the Apostle Paul speaking? Most Bible scholars agree that for some reason, reasons perhaps of modesty, he is talking about himself in the third person. That 14 years before, now that would place him out in the desert. If you recall from the book of Acts, after Paul's conversion, he went out into the desert for three years where he spent that time with Christ. Three years out in the desert. And so he said, 14 years ago, I knew a man who was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Was, was the apostle translated like Enoch, like Elijah, directly to paradise, you see? Or did he go there in a vision? It was so real to him, he said, I don't know whether I was in the body or out of the body, but 
This man, 14 years ago, was caught up to the third heaven. And in verse 4 it says, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. Some translations say unlawful things. Inexpressible things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. And this passage goes on. It's worthy of very extensive study and review. But the Apostle Paul had already been in heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, he, he can't say for sure. Now it's entirely possible that he considered, this, this book is written in prison, and he knew what, what was coming, he was going to be executed. It's entirely possible that he believed that he could be taken directly to heaven without seeing death, or maybe he would be resurrected shortly after he had passed away, and then he would be with the Lord in heaven. One or the other, he had already gone to heaven, and so in Philippians chapter 1, where he's talking about, shall I stay in the body, shall I leave the body, shall I go to be with Christ or stay here, and continue to minister to you folks that he had already been through that experience once. Nowhere in his writings does he ever imply for the church that death means that we immediately leave the body behind as a soul or a spirit and goes on. Now there are three reasons, very important reasons, why we decline to accept the popular interpretation of Philippians chapter 1. We're going to turn now to 1 Corinthians 15, 51, if you don't mind, if you have your Bibles. I see some pages turning, and some of you may be using a little mini laptop or something, that's good. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 starting with verse 50. I declare to you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. I love that word imperishable. You know, if you go to Trader Joe's or Albertsons, they have a department called the perishable department. And that's where they have fruits and vegetables, and they can only be there for a day or two, and then they have to do something with them, throw them away or something. You and I are perishable. Every day I look in the mirror, it looks to me like I got just a little bit, a little bit older. How about you? I'm reminded of my perishableness constantly. The day is coming when Jesus returns that we will be raised imperishable. You will never, 
age again. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Now you might choose to be a particular age, maybe for a few million years. You might choose to be 21, you know, for a couple million years. Just to experience what life is like as a 21-year-old again. And then you might say, well, no, I think I'll be 39. I don't know. But you won't be perishing. Perishing. All right, now as we look at this verse, there's a little bit more we need to read. We will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, we shall be changed. Now listen to this, please. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. We are mortal, meaning that we're subject to death. Death is a real phenomenon. It's not a doorway into another experience, into another existence. It's a real calamity. It's a, a crushing of consciousness. It is not until the second coming of Christ, according to the apostle, that this mortal will put on immortality. You put on immortality at the resurrection. And immortality means something really interesting. It means death-proof. Death-proof. You do not become death-proof until the great resurrection. And so Paul says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, power of sin is the law, and he goes on. We put on immortality at the second coming of Christ. Now, here is the first objection we have to the popular view. If the saints go directly to paradise after death, no resurrection would be necessary. Why would God bring the saints, the souls in the kingdom of heaven, all the way back to this earth to unite them, to unite those souls with ashes or bones that have been moldering away in a coffin when the moment the trumpet sounds and the voice of the archangel is heard, at that moment, the dead are brought back to life with a new body before they ever set foot outside the grave. That new body in 1 Corinthians 15 is called the heavenly body. It's called the celestial body. It is not a body of flesh and blood. The apostle has just told us that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. It, your, your body is completely transformed into something gloriously new, just like Jesus had after his resurrection. If, if the saints, if their souls and their spirits go on to paradise immediately following death, they could be given new bodies there. They could be given new bodies at that point. They don't have to come back all the way back to this earth to receive a new celestial 
our heavenly body, I mean, it'll be very difficult for, for that to happen. I have had several after-funeral experiences when, where we went out to scatter the ashes at sea. How are you going to find all of the ashes and gather them together into a body which would be, which would be immediately transformed? So there is no reason to have a resurrection if the saints, if their souls and their, or their spirits go directly into the kingdom. So our first objection to the popular view is that it would make the resurrection unnecessary. And remember, 41 times the word resurrection is used in the New Testament. And this is the beginning of our immortal experience. Now I want to go on to the second reason why we have to uh, reject the popular view. The second reason. It's on your outline, last paragraph on the page. The early believers were confused about what would happen to the dead in Christ. Now, by the way, some of you, this might be a new subject for some of you, don't panic. I have some things to share with you this morning that you are really going to like. So don't panic. But the early believers were confused about what would happen to the dead in Christ. Were they going to go to heaven sometime after the living saints got there? Or were they lost because they had died before Christ came back? This takes us to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13. Again, if you can follow along in your scriptures, one way or another it would be good. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. Now this is a very curious kind of passage. I have to tell you one thing about 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians was the first book written in the New Testament. It's the earliest scripture that came to be part of the New Testament. Did you know that? It was written just a, oh, just maybe 20 years after Jesus had been resurrected and ascended back to heaven. The very first, the very first book that became part of the New Testament. Now listen to the words of Paul. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. What does he mean by fall asleep? He means die. He means perish. We do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe, here he's speaking in the plural again, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. He's saying, those of us who are still alive when Jesus comes back will not precede, we will not get to heaven before those who have fallen asleep in Christ. We won't get there ahead of them. 
He goes on in the passage to say, we're all going to get there at the same time, at the very same time. Let's read this a little bit more. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. We are all gathered together at the same time to meet the Lord in the air. Now, I, I know you understand, you know this scripture well. But there's something here that is not said. What is said is clear. Those who die are not lost. They'll be resurrected. Those who are still alive when Christ comes back will be translated, or as some Christians put it, raptured. And we're all going to meet the Lord in the air at the very same time. If the apostle had understood and believed in what I'm calling the popular view of the souls being immortal and going on immediately into paradise, if that was his understanding, he should have told the church that right here because they were confused. Some of them were giving up hope. What is the fate of those who have been lost? who have died, who are asleep in Christ. Are they now lost? Paul could have told them, listen, I really have wonderful news for you. <clears throat> Those who are laid to rest, their soul, their spirit, immediately goes on to be with the Lord in paradise. He could have told them that right there, and that would have given them a tremendous comfort and a great hope. He says nothing about that. He just says... We're all going to be going together at the very same time. Now I want you to turn the page, if you've got the, the outline with you, to the third view, to the third objection to the popular view. This is the most serious one. This is the one that you must understand. The popular view requires that the soul be immortal, that it is not affected by death. It has to go on somewhere. If the souls of bad people are immortal, then they have to go to a bad place called hell, which must exist for all eternity, because these are immortal, death-proof souls. They'll have to live in some kind of bad place forever. This means that God would be a sadistic monster because God would have to continually recreate the body which has been suffering in hell, have to continually recreate that throughout eternity. Now, how would you like it if you got into the kingdom of heaven and you knew, let's say, that your father had never accepted the Lord? 
How would you like it if you knew that he was in hell somewhere pleading for death but unable to receive it because God was continually recreating his body so that he could suffer in hell? This doctrine has created more atheists than any other teaching in the scriptures. Now I have a book here I brought. I just wanted to show you this book today. The Bible teaches that the wicked do not burn eternally. I'm back to the outline. Note these words, Revelation 21, verse 9. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. You know, my favorite kind of pie is lemon meringue. <laughs> Second favorite is pumpkin. If I see a piece of pumpkin pie or a piece of lemon meringue pie at our potluck, I'm going to devour it. And there won't be anything left. When the fire comes down from God out of heaven, Revelation chapter 21, according to the scripture, it devours the lost. <coughs> There's nothing left. And that is a mercy to them. The only reason they're lost is because they wouldn't like it in heaven. They wouldn't enjoy it. Heaven would be a hell to them if they were taken there against their will. Now this, this is a great book, not written by a Seventh-day Adventist, written by a Baptist. I have to tell you about this man. Uh, the book is entitled The Fire That Consumes, and it's written by Edward Fudge, who's an attorney. He's still alive in Texas. Some of my friends at Thousand Oaks Church, where I pastored for eight years, made a movie about the life of Edward Fudge. It's called Hell and Mr. Fudge. If you want to see that, it's a terrific story. Very well done. Hell and Mr. Fudge. Now, Mr. Fudge decided he wanted to be a minister in the Baptist church. He, went, he got degrees from like three different seminaries. And in the course of his study, he discovered grace. He discovered that God is merciful that God is eternally a God of love, absolute and complete love. He couldn't fit the doctrine of eternally burning hellfire into that picture of God who is merciful and is a God of eternal love. He couldn't, he couldn't make, them, make it work. So he began to study this matter and he began to question whether hell was eternal or not. And so, after he had gotten his first church, he started to preach the Bible as he was learning it. And his denomination decided that he better find something else to do for a living. He was dismissed as a preacher in the Baptist church. So he went to law school and became a very successful attorney. And along the way, over the course of 10 years, he studied this subject of hellfire out. And one day, he, in, in the movie, Helen, Mr. Fudge, one day, he was turning the same question over and over in his mind. 
where and how did this doctrine of an eternally burning hell fire, how did it ever get into Christian doctrine? Because he was convinced it's not found in scripture. Now there are verses that read like there's an eternally burning hell, the fire that will burn forever. If you have a King James Version, here's what I want you to do. I want you to find the scripture, for example, Revelation chapter 21, says the fire burns forever. You will see that many times that word forever is actually two words, for space ever. It is a Greek word translated into English, and that Greek word is eon, A-I-O-N, and eon just means an indeterminate amount of time. It doesn't mean infinite time, it doesn't mean uh, eternal time, it just means uh, an extended period of time, an extended period. So he, he kept asking himself, how did this teaching ever get into the church? And uh, I want to read to you from, I have it in the outline there for you, but I'm just going to read it from the jacket from the cover of Fudge's book. This book first asked, what does the Bible actually teach about the end of the wicked? Like the traditional view, it concludes that hell is final and irreversible. Unlike the traditional view, however, it finds hell's ultimate punishment to be eternal destruction. The wicked, once totally consumed, will cease to exist forever. A second question naturally follows. If the Bible does not teach eternal conscious torment, where did that idea come from, and why is it so generally held in the church? This book searches through the centuries for the answer and finds it in the pagan Greek notion of immortal souls which crept early into Christian thinking. That whole view of the immortal soul is not found in the Bible. It came out, it came from the pagan Greek philosophers and captured Christian doctrine. No, you can't have it both ways. If a lost person who is a, who's good will go to heaven forever, and if there is a lost person who is wicked and goes to hell, they have to stay there forever too. That's what the popular view demands us to believe about hell. So for three reasons, we reject the idea of the immortal soul. Resurrection is unnecessary. The church in Paul's day had no, were, were given no instruction that the soul of the spirit goes on. And the third point, of course, the most important one, is that we cannot believe in eternally burning hellfire. Now, do Seventh-day Adventists have something more to say to those who are grieving because they've lost a loved one? Do we have more to say than that person is just as dead as a doornail? Because I can tell you that message is not well received at funerals where all the people there expect to hear that their 
deceased dad or brother is already in heaven playing golf with God. I've heard that said myself at funeral messages. They're not going to receive with any kind of smile on, on their face what happens. Do we have something to share? Friends, we have phenomenally good news. I, I just have to have you look at a couple more scriptures with me. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive, always speaking in the plural, made us alive with Christ when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Now the Apostle Paul says that when we are, when we have not heard of the love of God and the story of Jesus, we're dead in our trespasses and sin. But then when we accept Jesus as our Savior, and we're baptized, when we come up out of the water, we're resurrected to a new life beginning at that point. Now let's take verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ. That's past tense. When you gave your heart to the Lord and you were baptized, you were raised up with Christ at that point. Now, but the scripture continues. Raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. If you're a Christian and you've been resurrected to a new life, now listen to this. You are already seated with God in Christ in heaven. You're at the right hand of the Father now. Yes, your bodies are here. Your, 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 your persons are here. But your true spiritual position is there. You're already sitting with God in Christ. You're sitting at the right hand of the Father. I've got to read that again. This is an amazing scripture. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Positionally, you're already there. Now, can you say amen to that? Amen. Now, I want to add another verse to this. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. And this verse, I can't tell you how this verse has comforted me. When my mother passed, and, and you know, we buried her cemetery in Chico, uh, there were butterflies all over, that, all over that cemetery. You know, the butterfly is a very ancient symbol of the resurrection, correct? You knew that. Very ancient symbol of the resurrection. I believe that God was sending me a message to bring comfort to me. And this scripture is a scripture that I have claimed for many people, not just for myself. I've claimed this for many people. I want you to follow me as I read it. 
Since then you have been raised with Christ. If you're converted, and if you've been baptized, you've been raised with Christ. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Did you get that? Your life is now hidden with Christ in God, right now. Yes, you will fall asleep in Jesus until the second coming. You're not conscious, but you are in the arms of Jesus when you pass. You are in the heart of God. That's your true spiritual position ever since you were first baptized. You are at the right hand of God. And this scripture says, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. Those who are asleep in Jesus are not down there six feet underground. They are in an unconscious state sleeping and God has wrapped his arms around them and they're right next to his heart. That's the good news we have to share with people. Now what does Ellen White say on this subject? What does she say about this? I have a quote for you on the back, bottom of the page, but I wanna to read to you a little-known statement by Ellen G. White. It's found in the Adventist Bible Commentary. It's a manuscript 76 from the year 1900. Now here's how the, how the authors of the commentary understood what, what she said, what she wrote. Uh, in bold letters, that's their commentary, personality preserved in a new body. Personality preserved in a new body. Our personal identity is preserved in the resurrection. This is Ellen White speaking. Though not the same particles of matter or material substance as went into the grave. The wondrous works of God are a mystery to man. The spirit, the character of man, is returned to God there to be preserved. Now by character she means personality. The spirit, the personality of man is returned to God there to be preserved. In the resurrection every man will have his own personality. She uses the word character here which was an old word referring to personality. The spirit, the character, the personality of a man or a woman is returned to God there to be preserved. When you, God forbid, you pass, you fall asleep in Jesus before his coming, his return. God forbid that. But if it happens, there is an absolutely perfect record of who you are within the mind of God. A perfect record of it. And at the second coming, when Christ comes back, all those records of his saints are brought with him and they are matched up with the deceased bodies 
in whatever location and am immediately transformed into the celestial and heavenly being, not flesh and blood, that will be enjoying the blessings of eternity with Christ and with our families. Most people who want to go to heaven at the top of their list is they want to see their family members again. Is that true for you? Can I see your hand? You want to go to the kingdom, you want to see your family members again. It's not about playing the harp. I don't even like harp music. <laughs> it, it's not about having a pet lion. Is, are there harpists in this church? I take it back when I just I take it all back. Traveling is great, wonderful. I want to see my father. The best man I ever knew. I want to see my mother. And it brings a comfort to me to know my dad and my mother are not underground. The perfect record of who they are is held within the heart, held within the arms of God. Don't give up and think that the second coming of Christ is centuries down the road. Don't give up your faith in the soon coming of the Lord. I'm not here to tell you that it is at hand. I'm not here to tell you it's going to come within the next five years, but it's coming. And those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, who've been preserved there in heavenly places, they will rise, and when they rise, it will have been just a moment after they fell asleep. Is that right? That's right. Just one moment after they fall asleep. Death is not hard on them, it's hard on us. <coughs> because we miss them. <coughs> the grand reunion day is coming, friends. Hang on. 